Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Martellaro. And this week, my guest is the Mac Observer podcaster and journalist, Mr. John Brown. John, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you on the show. We have known each other for I don't know how long. Maybe ever since I joined Mac Observer and you were in Mac Geek Cab Full Swing, maybe 2006 or so. Because that's... That's when Mac Geek Cab started, 2005, right? Um, thereabouts. Yeah, so we've met each other at Macworld and hung around, but uh, you're kind of a quiet guy at the Mac Observer. You're more into the podcasting side of it, and I'm more into the writing side of it. Although I do have this kind of neat podcast, I get to meet some really cool people, including you. So I wanted to ask you, so, so since we've known each other kind of obliquely, I wanted to learn more about you and, and introduce you to the listeners. So tell me about your earliest years. It looked like you were into computers from an early age. If you, could, if you look at my bio at the Mac Observer, it says I was born at an early age and started writing about computers right after that. So it sounds like you, you and I are very similar. You and I are very similar in many ways, actually. But uh, tell me about your early interests. Well, I would say my... Um, I think early interests started with... Um, I guess my dad drove a lot of this. So my dad was a, um, uh, he's retired now, an engineering manager. So that's where I kind of got the engineer. Ah, that'll do it. In me. Yeah. Um, And I always liked and was good at math and science and all of that. Um, What do you attribute that? I've always wondered about that. Is it sort of just genetic and it just pops out or is it something about? the way we go to school and the teachers with it inspire us. Um, you know, that's a great question. Nature versus nurture. Yeah. Um, probably part of it was inspiration, but I always leaned more towards the, uh, towards the science and math side, just because it was stuff that was interesting. You know, so science was interesting and, um, and math, I was, uh, good at and had an aptitude and, you know, took advanced courses and, and all of that. Did you do things like take high school physics and geek out with a slide oh, yeah. rule and stuff like that? <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, I think chemistry was probably one of my favorites because we, uh, we got, to blow, got to blow things up. I loved chemistry because the equations were so cool. You'd balance the elements and then the subscripts on one side and magically would pop out other stuff, compounds on the other side, and you would balance it and atomic weights and... And it was kind of cool keeping all track of the bookkeeping and chemistry. It was kind of fun. I don't know how I would have done organic chemistry, but I certainly liked PCHEM a lot. Yeah, again, one of the things I remember, I still remember, it was hydrochloric acid and zinc makes hydrogen gas. We did an experiment where we captured the hydrogen gas, and then we got to light it with a, with a map. <laughs> so, we, so we got something that blew up. <laughs> <laughs> right there in the classroom. I wonder if they still do that. That sounds kind of scary. <laughs> Well, there's a reason that you wear goggles. Yeah, of course. Um, but my first exposure to a computer, so I, I got started at an early age. Um, and I also also do experiments at home, um, which my parents could tell you about, mostly like fire and stuff like that. So, anyways. Did you have one of those um, chemistry kits? I remember that was a popular Christmas present when I was little. Um, my brother almost got- blew up the basement a couple of times. <laughs> I think I got one of those, and I also got one of those electronic kits from Radio Shack. Remember those, where you could wire up circuits? Or I don't know if you were. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, 
But anyway, so so my first exposure to a computer was actually back in middle school, and it was a PDP eleven with a teletype. Mm. So this was um, good old days. But then it got more interesting, and I was like, "Wow, you know, look at this." Uh, and I think the first thing that got me into it was, you know, you could play Advent on it. For the listeners, a PDP eleven was a mini computer about the size of a refrigerator. Right. Uh, this was like a tabletop unit, but yeah, it was um, it was um, older technology. Yeah. But all you could do was um, uh, either write programs or load them off of paper tape. Yes, paper tape. That's how they stored the programs. Did it run Fortran? And anything as sophisticated as Fortran then, or was it more like machine language? Um, this just had basic on it. Uh, Fortran I did when I started my undergrad, which uh, you know started a few years later. Uh, that was one of the languages that they taught at the time. But um, I just remember when I saw it, I'm like, this is the coolest toy ever. Mm-hmm. I make it do what I want. It bends to my will. Then, because they knew that I was one of the kids that liked the computer, we got an Apple II. And we were like, they turned it on and it was like, okay, there's basic. And it's like, wait a second. We don't have to load it from paper tape. <laughs> And that they had it, as, as you recall, the, uh, it was burned into the ROMs. It was just amazing technology. And it could do graphics. You know, the teletype really could Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Same thing with me. I, was, I learned Fortran on a Control Data 3600 in Indiana and uh, got my Apple II as a graduate student. And I was off and yeah. running. So that was my inspiration. And then uh, at home, my first machine was an Apple IIe. Did you go out and buy a floating point card right AppleSoft floating point card right away? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, and I got a, a CPM card because I was uh, uh, when I was doing my development courses uh, for one of my degrees. They were like, "Well, um, we were doing it with CPM, which, as I recall, is an operating system that you could run if you had a Z80." Early days, early days of PCs, CPM control program for microcomputers. Yep. Yeah. Or microprocessors. It was the predecessor yep. of DOS, right? Not, maybe not uh, the arc, maybe so. not the ancestral direct lineage, but it was one of the early operating systems mm-hmm. for PCs. So that was my start. And then, back when I got my Apple IIe, there was this cool thing called a BBS. I was like, hey, I want to run one of those. <laughs> so you and bought I, a Hayes 300 baud modem, right? Um, actually, it was an Ovation Apple Cat. Ah, interesting. Um, well, the Apple Cat uh could do certain things and I, I don't want to get into too much detail. But um it would allow you to manipulate the phone system and that's about all else. <laughs> we won't talk about those details. Yeah. yeah. No, I um <laughs> Yeah, it was one time that I, I may have may have gotten caught. But um no it was fast but back at the back at the time the, this was pre I mean, the internet was existed, but your average person couldn't access it. So the way we got around, we had to do it with a phone line. Um, Mostly I bulletin board a, systems, right? Where you well, dial into a, a university bar. computer or a bulletin board. Yeah, and it was um, so that's how I, you know, got into telecommunications, and it was fascinating. But it was all over the phone network, and the problem was, I mean, now of course you know it's all you can catch anything in the world for nothing. But back then. Um, I had a pretty popular bulletin board because I was in a phone exchange that was local to like every town that surrounded me. It was, and I had several hundred people and also they, 
you know, the theme of being able to control it. Um, so that was kind of fun to, to, to administer that. Cool. And exchange, you know, tips and software and things like that. The, uh, the other thing that interest, interested me was um, kind of like the security aspect of what I've, I've done. Um, That's an early thing that, to be thinking about at that point. Back then, yeah. we didn't have too many concerns. And um, so I also worked with some uh, individuals who uh, knew how to deprotect software. And that was, uh, that was kind of fun, digging in to the uh, technology and trying to battle you know, the countermeasures, if you will, that they put into place to make it so you couldn't, um, you know, you couldn't copy what's on a floppy disk. Ah, yes, the old infamous copy protection. Eh, I mean, half tracks, quarter tracks, and they did different phasing. (laughs) And I still remember you either buy a board that could crack things, or you could, like, if you, and this is when when I uh, learned a bit of assembler, um, or machine language, um, in that if you uh, if you understood the underlying technology, you could put in breakpoints and, and look at the code and, and figure out what they're doing and then kind of undo it. So how old you were when how old were you when this was all happening? Were you an undergraduate? Um, uh, around yeah, it was the the middle eighties. I would say I was um, class of eighty four. My high school. Is your undergraduate or high school? That was high school, eighty four. So then, where did you go on to college after that? So then, what I did, um, and I would recommend this uh, uh, to anyone. So, so I started off with, um, and it was it was nice because my far- parents felt an obligation to pay for my higher education. Um, but not too much. So I actually went to a state school, um, and they still have the, the system. Uh, back when I went there, it was called Norwalk State Technical College, and uh, and you could get a two-year degree. So I'm like, yeah, let's go there. It was funny, though, because the tuition, uh, the books cost more than tuition if you were a state resident. <laughs> so that's when I you know, learned some more programming. And that then the, this was like a, a better computer. Um, it was a Honeywell CP6. Uh, Never heard of that. Technical college. Yeah, it was kind of kind of offbeat. But um, our personal computer, are we talking about? No, no, no. It's a, a, a that was a mini computer. I, I would oh, say. Okay. okay. Similar to the, the the other one there. And the, you know, they had multiple terminals and stuff like that. Um, for certain things, we would actually send our code up to. Uh, so, so we were doing IBM three hundred and sixty. Uh, coding at a low level and we would send our uh, jobs actually up to UConn uh, and pay them for processor time. University of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I did a two-year, but the thing is that the, the school at the time, so it was kind of an interesting transition in that they were using Apple IIs for teaching people computer science because that was kind of the machine. You know, it was very flexible. Um that helped me out. So, so for my, my two-year and actually even my, my uh, four-year, uh, I was able to use my Apple II to uh, do the development courses, or a lot of them. I mean, you know, for some things, um, we would log in by our terminal session. But it was nice to be able to, uh, yeah, use my Apple II for most of my, uh, for, for my 
two-year and, and also four-year. And then my interest kind of changed. So, so my two-year was computer science, and then my four-year is computer engineering, which is kind of a mix of computer science and electrical engineering, and that we did take some electrical engineering courses. Would you get into more of the chip design, integrated circuits, and things like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, I took um, – oh, man. And that, that helped me decide, you know, do I want to take the software direction or the hardware direction? So that gave me a mix of both, and I decided after that, well, you know, I got what I wanted out of it. Um, but yeah, what, one of the courses, oh, it was grueling, um, was VLSI design. Where we wow, sounds like it. And materials. Very large scale integrated circuits. Now, we didn't actually have a fab. Uh, some of my friends, like the, uh, other schools, actually had fabs um, or plants where, where you could actually realize your design. In this case, we just laid it out using a simulator and then would run it and um oh man i think me and my partner were up for like three days straight (laughs) taking little naps and stuff but the thing is we had to get the project in it was like part of our uh there was a very cool nova episode uh about a week ago about apollo 8 and they were talking about how they uh were just getting large-scale integrated circuits uh, in the late 60s to the point where they didn't have to use discrete transistors anymore and they couldn't have done the computer they needed to build for the Apollo command module if they hadn't had integrated hmm. circuits. Yeah, so, um, and another course was a digital circuit design and that was fun and, and my project for that. So this uh, allowed me to get into some other technology areas. So, so another thing I did, uh, which you know started in school, you know, I had a, a desire to communicate, and back then CB was all the, the, the rage. So whereas now, get you know, kids get online and use their chat programs and all that. The, the way we socialized back then was to get on the CB. <laughs> um, then that led to exploring some other RF worlds, uh. and the, the crowd that I hung out with were also into scanners. So we had a lot of fun with that. And I still remember, um, you know, so we would have scanners in our cars, which you're allowed to do, at least in our state. And uh, I still remember, you know, hanging out with, with my crowd, and we knew the frequencies for the cops because they're published. And they were like, oh, yeah, youths gathering at this and that parking lot. And we're like, oh, okay, let's go to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> There's this, this game of cat and mouse, and the thing is they – it was all broadcast in the clear, and the thing is they didn't realize that, hey, guys, we can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> They, um, I mean, I still remember what one of them, and they were like, "Oh yeah, we're on high band. They, they can't hear us here. The frequency's too high." It's like, no, it's oh, <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Now, um, but to to relate that to my schoolwork, so another project that I did, and where I learned a little bit about pull down resistors, was um, I actually my project was to develop a computer interface for my scanner, so I could program it with the computer. So I, was basic, so I basically built a circuit that would virtually press the buttons that were on the front of it. That was a really neat project, too. Cool. So that was another aspect of communications that I, I got into was, you know, understanding RF and antenna design and, and all of that. And then, you know, that extended to, uh, to uh, a scanner. And then, well, some other, I also did some other RF-related things, uh, Let's talk about those in the second half of the show. Right now, we have to take a break. Is that okay? 
Sure. Folks, we have to take a break. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. Thank you. We're back. I'm chatting with TMO journalist and podcaster John Brown. John, it sounds to me like all the things you talked about in the first half of the show were just just brimming with expertise and lining you up for a career. And an employer would be just green with envy to get their hands on you. Is that how it worked out? And here is how I how I did that. So, um, when I did my undergrad at Univer- University of Bridgeport, they had something called a co-op program or an ah, internship. Mm-hmm. I can't recommend this more. Uh, if you're going to spend the money on getting an education and thinking about a career, find a school that has an internship or a co-op program because you don't want to hate what you do. <laughs> Every day. Those are very valuable because you get to know the employer. You get to learn what the workplace is like. They get to learn about you and what you're like. And if things go well during the internship, you've got a happy marriage and a job. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, So my first one was uh, with General Electric. And it was basically doing what I'd consider data processing. And it was like, wow, this is kind of interesting. That was on a different computer. That was on a Prime. I don't know if you ever heard of that. I did. Business anymore. And we and so yeah, so we were developing um, mostly SQL database code on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our project or, or our responsibility was to, to run this database AG language, language. right? Yes, structured query language. So, um, and basically, what we did is uh, our job was to run to do the data processing, the data input, and the backup, and all that stuff on uh, on this computer. Is that in support of anything cool, like an aerospace program or some other higher-level program that Um, I'm in support of? No, it was basically, it was a corporate restructuring process um, that they offered this service. And basically, you would enter, so you would go to a company, you would have all the managers fill out a sheet showing what they did what percent of the time, and what their subordinates did what percent of the time, and... uh, they had these algorithms, so basically say, okay, um, here's how many people you can get rid of. It was usually <laughs> the conclusion uh, of, uh, of the, uh, the algorithm that they were running. But sometimes they needed a custom report, so the various consultants, uh, which are mostly, you know, I guess MBAs and stuff like that, more financial people, because that was the goal here, is you want to optimize your operation. Um, but then that was um, the first chance that I had to... Uh, to work on a Mac. Our boss was very forward-looking, and we actually uh, did some of our work. Uh, instead of on the Prime, we would do it on Mac 2s, which was a you know, groundbreaking machine because it's like... I had one of those. Months. It was awesome. Yeah, so our boss was like, you know, forget this Prime thing. You know, we're, we're going to use, use something else here. 
Um, so it was kind of researchy. But then the problem was, you know, you'd run the process for whoever. And then you had to do it again with different data. And I'm like, okay, this is boring. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it's like, uh, you know, hats off to people that can do what I'll call, you know, data processing or, you know, kind of IT that's kind of um, turn the crank work. Yeah, but after you've laid the groundwork, they don't want to do it all over. Right. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, so much for that. So it's like, thank guys, but you know, it was a good experience, and um, uh, and then my second one was with this company that I had never really heard of called Pitney Bowes, and uh, it was working for their R and D group. And. Uh, Pitney Bowes was famous for something, but I forgot what it was. Didn't they make some sort of national hardware that people used all the time? Oh, well, they they invented, um, the founders invented the postage meter, basically. Ah, the postage meter, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, and they're still one of the, you know, if you look on an envelope, you, you'll see the maker of the meter. So if it says PB meter, then it's Pitney Bowes postage meter. Um, but they also did a lot of other things. That was the, the mailing you know, is still their core business. And unfortunately they kind of, well, we'll come to it in a moment why I'm not with them anymore. But, um, but yeah, when I started with them, um, it was R and D trying to recall. The name that was this. embedded software, right? Um, not necessarily. Well, I thought well, the postage meter, well, the first postage meters were all mechanical, but then they started introducing, uh, more and more digital technology. Them. But for the longest time, even though they'd be, you know, driven by a computer, um, all they would do is stamp something on an envelope. There was no, for the longest time, there was no sort of security. It was like, you know, it used the special ink, but it, and it looked a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the way the technology worked, you know, so this is, you know, the fun knowing chemistry and then stuff like that. The way the post office pretty much knows that something is paid for is that they shine a light on it. And if it either fluoresces or phosphoresces, depending on the, the medium, um, they're like, okay, that's probably something somebody paid for. It's like, okay. We also had to manage. The, 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 the other thing is that, you know, managing the funds, and that, that's another thing the company would do, is that, you know, you had to put money in your account in order to print your, uh, your postage. Is this when you started working on patents? Um, you have yes. a bunch of them. I'm impressed. Uh, how many? 23. Uh, 23. That's what you told me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'll have to, uh, yeah. So that's the number. And, um, so actually that, that kind of led into, yeah, one of the first patents. So one of the, I think the coolest projects that I did at Pitney Bowes, um, so they wanted to come out the, with their first digital postage meter, which actually had, you know, like cryptography and security uh, built in. And uh, and what happened at one point is they realized, you know, the developing product, you know, I was still in the sandbox, um, you know, in R&D. And they were like, yeah, we're going to release this uh, meter that's going to use crypto and, you know, all sorts of innovative stuff here to uh, protect funds and, and all of that. Um, and they were like, uh-oh, we need an infrastructure to like manage all the crypto keys and stuff like that. And they're like, hey, all you R&D people, come over here. You're going to do product development. I mean, we, we would 
consult a lot of times. So R&D had, you know, people that were specialists in certain technologies. So they, they would pull them in to consult on projects. But sometimes we did actual work, develop a product. So the coolest part of this is that we had to develop with a very regressive schedule an infrastructure that would, uh, or some would call it public key infrastructure. So I learned... Uh, I'm a developer, but but I also you know learned a bit of crypto. So we used um, we used uh, something called BeSafe, uh, which was implementing this magical new thing called public key cryptography, and we used that as the part of our uh, part of our system to secure it. But it was a lot of fun, and so that was uh, one of the first patents because we had to come up with uh, with an algorithm. To, now uh, patents are held by the company you work for traditionally, instead typically of the, the way it works. Right? Yeah, so the thing is, you would, you would um, you know, we had a standard form you'd fill out um, on a quarterly basis. They would go through the applications, and then the, uh, you know, the people in uh, uh, the lawyers, you know, would go through them all, you know, or, or a, a, a council, and they basically decide, well, which one should we file and which one shouldn't, because you got to pay money to do it now, you know, that the company had the money, of course. But, um, and then you may have to sit down with a patent attorney, which, um, believe it or not, John, uh, I, uh, I was very impressed with the patent attorneys that I work with. Patent attorneys are very much like engineers, which I would also consider. Oh, yeah, I believe that. Is that, yeah. is that you have you, you have this list of rules and conditions, and, and you know, it's like, it's like an algorithm. It's just different if you're filing a patent, but there is a whole process. You know, if you consider part of engineering – you know, coming up with an algorithm or, or the steps to get to, to accomplish something, then um, you would think a, a lawyer. And then we also had lawyers that they would take additional courses, like they would take some programming courses or some electrical engineering courses. So they'd not only be a patent attorney, but they, they would have the, the, the knowledge of the technology to determine whether it was something, uh, something in the file. But um, yeah, it was great fun. They, um, you know, you get a, you know, you get a few hundred bucks for everyone that they filed. Um, and then anybody that had one awarded, uh, you would get invited to uh, what they call the inventor's dinner. And you got to meet the CEO and all the big shots and uh, have some nice food and drink. And, nice. Uh, nice. And that was cool. Um, and I did do some technical analysis briefly. So, so they also had this um, back then, this lawsuit between uh, Pitney Bowes and a whole bunch of other people. And um, it was due to a patent. And, um, I guess One of yours? Was, no, no, unfortunately. But we, we got a pretty nice award. But it was basically, uh, we had developed a technology, or, or we had a patent on laser printing variable dot size, I guess would be the best, uh, best way to describe it. And so we had a patent on it. And the thing is, you can't infringe on someone's patent. And we basically determined that most of the other people that had laser printers with, you know, variable dot size um, were infringing. And they have to license it. And uh, the only one that didn't didn't give up was uh, HP. And uh, but eventually the courts uh, decided that, no, you got to, you know, you got to pay them for their uh, their innovation. Hmm. Must have been a hefty check. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Yeah. It was probably in the millions. Wow. Um, pretty cool. Or hundreds of millions, I think. But um. Pretty cool. 
yeah. So it was neat. So it was fun to work on technology, but also do this other stuff. Um, well, you had started um, Mac Geekab with Dave Hamilton even before you'd left Pitney Bowes, right? You were doing this concurrently? Um, yeah, I was doing, um, yeah, so Mac Observer. Um, How did I, you guys I, meet, by the way? Tell me that story. Dave and I both. Dave and I both ran bulletin boards. When I told you about my bulletin board thing, he had another one. So I had one called Treasure All, too. He had one called Millaways. Was this uh, when he was in Austin? No, this is when he was in Connecticut. Okay, okay. So he grew up in, we both grew up uh, in towns that were next to each other. Uh, and yeah, I met him through the, uh, and we would have, you know, little social get-togethers. We weren't total computer nerds and that we'd actually, you know, get together in a meet space, if you will, <laughs> with uh, other people in the area that, you know, were part of the... Uh, okay, so you, you were in Connecticut and he was in New Hampshire? Well, he grew up in Connecticut. Uh, he grew up in Connecticut. Then, oh uh, yeah, that's right. Um, well, then he went to Texas for a while. And then I think, uh, at yeah, that's where he met Brian. Sure. Yeah. So, did you guys? Well, so Mac Observer was founded in 1998, just at our 20th anniversary. So Mac right. Observer was in full swing. So, anyways, but I, you know, Dave and I would keep in touch here, and uh, yeah. So when was this? So 98 is when I started with. Um, with Mac Observer, but what started with Mac Observer um, was I knew that Dave was, you know, that Dave had took uh, an interest um, or created Mac Observer, um, and I knew that they went to MacWorld, and I was like, "Hey, Dave, can you get me into to MacWorld like <laughs> Steve Jobs?" And he's like, "No." Yeah. <laughs> That's unethical. You got to write an article, and he's like, "But you know, we just had this one columnist leave, and uh, you know, we got this, uh, which I don't write anymore. But it was called Monday's Mac Gadget, and it was a weekly thing I did for a while. That you know, just a neat software toy that I found, uh, usually or sometimes a hardware toy. Um, and he's like, "Yeah, but if you if you start writing articles, um, then you can get in his media." And I'm like, "Cool." <clears throat> so that's. Uh, that's how I started with them, but I, I was doing it in the, you know, as a part-time thing. Um, yeah, well, Mac Geek App is a pretty extensive production. You have to be really well prepared. What does it take for you on your side to prepare for a Mac Geek App? Do you, do, you, do you guys talk during the week about what you're going to do and then study up on it, or is it more off the cuff? How does it work? Um, most of it's driven by what comes into our uh email and then you know we'll look through answer the questions if we can sometimes we throw them out to the peanut gallery but basically it's going through the um and dave does most of the, i mean he does the agenda and stuff like that but you know we'll both uh take questions and then put them in a list and then you know every week he takes what we got and tries to figure out a, a theme or something and group, you know, similar things together. I have in my notes that uh, Mac Geekab has 80,000 listeners. Something like that. Wow. So you yeah, probably get a lot of feedback and a lot of questions. Yeah. But, Still. um, yeah, and that's a, and that's actually kind of, uh, you know, kind of freaks me out sometimes to think that there's 80,000 people listening to me. <laughs> And does it does the fact that you've done seven hundred and forty eight episodes freak you out too? Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, 
that was fun because when I was a PB uh, at one point. So the thing is, in, in R&D, we had to do uh, quarterly presentations to the uh, uh, to the big shots. And, um, well, they wanted to make sure that you could, uh, you could present and not lose it when you're presenting to, you know, important executives up to and including the CEO. Um, so I took a public speaking course, and, and I still remember the guy that was teaching it. He's like, John, you are hereafter known as the voice because <laughs> yeah. he said i uh, because he said you know you just have that tone and just that that intellectual disc jockey voice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. uh but i learned but yeah i then you know uh people in r&d we typically uh you know, we had a, a close link to the people at the top here, but yeah, we had to do these uh, quarterly things, and so yeah, I'd, you know, first it's like, oh my gosh, I have to present this. Oh, what am I going to do? Where all these important people? Am I going to screw it up? And it's like, nope, take this course, and, and you're cool. And then also, I would mentor. Um, so not only did I get where I was going by being a co-op, but I would also, uh, for them, do recruiting, uh, mostly. Uh, Mostly uh, at a Cornell and RPI were the schools that we like to uh, like to go to. That was fun. So I would get on the road, and we basically, you know, interview them just like real employees. And, um, and then I would, you know, mentor more than one and uh, teach them a few things because that's what happened when I was a co-op. Is I learned a lot of stuff about you know R and D and engineering. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Well, we only have a few minutes left. I just a couple burning questions on my list I wanted to ask you. Before we run out of time, so what's the current Mac that's your favorite right now that you use? Um, I would have to say that my current favorite Mac is my mid 2012 15-inch MacBook Pro. Nice computer. Yep. And uh, for the type of work I do, and I also like it because, to me, in my humble opinion, this is one of the last. Well. I won't give an opinion. Um, the fact oh, is, oh come on, come on, come on, came, come on, come on. No, the <laughs> fact is that machines after that were less and less user serviceable. This machine, I can access the battery, I can access the hard drive, and I can access the RAM without destroying it. You just screw the bottom off. Then the machines that came after that, they started to eliminate the ability for you to in in the name of thinness. In order, to, in order to make the machine the machine really really thin, you have to. Eliminate those doors and screws and serviceability. <laughs> yeah, that's too bad. So that's a, this is my daily driver. Um, now, unfortunately, um, this uh, Mojave will be the, the the last operating system that will be supported on this machine. So if I want to run any future, yeah, I think I'm in the same boat with my Mac. Versions. I think I'm in the same boat with my Mac Pro. I have to have to see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one machine, and then the other one that is on my desk here and that we're using right now to, to do this is a, a Mac Mini uh, 2014. I think it's 2014. Yes. How did you feel about um, the new Mac Minis? You really in love with them or just kind of yawners? Oh, I think they... I mean, they they added all... I mean, people were asking for you know more capability, and, uh, and they delivered, I think. It took them a while. Right, I mean, four years between the release of the last machine. So uh, I like the the mini because uh, it was like, I mean, first it was relatively inexpensive for a Mac, and second of all, it's like, wow, I can add my own screen and 
Yeah. I like keyboard and peripherals and stuff like that, which kind of appealed to me. If I had to do it again, that I don't know if I would get another mini or I would get an iMac though, because I mean the screens on the iMacs are pretty nice. I like having my own display. I have a 34 inch Hewlett Packard, and I'm just fixated on the idea of attaching my own display. So, Uh, Dave Hamilton said he bought a Mac Mini in the 2018 Mac Mini, and he says it's really powerful. He did some benchmarking on it, and he's very pleased with it. Might be my next computer. Because I don't think I'll be able to afford the 2019 Mac Pro. That's going to be a monster. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm concerned about what's out there in the MacBook uh, MacBook Pro space. I don't know if I really have warmed up to the latest, especially USB-C and all that stuff there, and their fixation on making it as thin as possible. Yeah. It's not something that I really care about. I mean, Pro, I want a Pro machine. And, like, you know, this one, I mean, this 2012 here, I mean, all the ports that it has, you know, USB 3 and gigabit Ethernet and FireWire 800. Yes, FireWire 800. But I don't have any more of those drives. Long since gotten rid of my FireWire 800 drives. Glorious. They were wonderful in their day, and I loved them, but uh, they're all gone now in my house. Yeah. I mean, now, for the most, most of or a lot of what I do, I love my uh, NAS devices. Um, and as you know, we're uh, we're big Synology fans. Yeah, they're yeah. big fans of us too. That they, they, they actually have an event in, uh, in Manhattan yearly, and uh, it's a good event. They give away prizes, and uh, they got all the big shots there. They tell you what their uh, roadmap is for the for the next year. It's a it's a really nice NAS. Those are great devices. <clears throat> well, John, I think we're going to have to wrap it up. Oh, oh, we talked for like 38 minutes. Time just flies. Thanks for coming on. It's been great getting to know you better and hear your story. All right, John. And uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for adding me to, uh, to, uh, to the group. Uh, Absolutely. Pretty, it's a pretty diverse group of uh, I mean, some pretty uh, impressive uh, folks that, uh, that you've had on the show. And then there's me. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I've been very fortunate. Uh, I've had a lot of guests who have been uh, very gracious and had a lot of fun with them, and it's going to continue. So tell the listeners uh, how they can contact you if they wish. Um, well, the usual, you know, if you go on Facebook and you search for my name, uh, search for John F. Braun, though. I, I typically include my middle initial. Just uh, It makes it easier to find me. Okay. Um. But on Twitter, John F. Brown on Twitter, um, if you want to check out our podcast, um, that's also on Twitter, MacGeekGab, or you can go to MacGeekGab.com and, uh, you know, maybe uh, join the family. Uh, yes, absolutely. If you're not listening to MacGeekGab, uh, it's a lot great, of fun. It's a great and, podcast, uh, a lot of fun, and very you know, uh, educational. Uh, it's something that I love doing every week. Cool. Well, thanks for joining me. It's been fun here, too. Folks, I hope you enjoyed listening to John Brown's story. You've been listening to the Mech Observer's background mode. We'll see you again next week.